0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 533 of this podcast. This is Monday. Today is... January 9th, 2023, and in this episode, we're going to be talking a bit about the (laughs) visit to the border by President Joe Biden, the border with Mexico, of course, is what I'm referring to down in Texas, and some of the politics surrounding that. Uh, Also, too, I want to talk just generally about immigration and what I think would be a wise corrective to uh, attitudes on all sides of this issue moving forward. Also to a brief word or two or three or four, probably not that few about the speech that Kevin McCarthy gave in accepting the House Speaker uh, nomination vote, whatever you want to call it. I guess he was nominated well before he was voted in. And that was a bit of a process last week, but he gave a speech and then was sworn in. I watched his speech. I watched the video of him being sworn in, taking his oath, and I have some thoughts. I have some follow-up thoughts on that whole uh, situation. Also, too, I want to tease a review of a review (laughs) of... Uh, The Case for Christian Nationalism by Stephen Wolfe, by Kevin DeYoung over at the Gospel Coalition. Just even the title is provocative. I mean, the title of the book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, is provocative. No less is the title for Kevin DeYoung's review of The Case for Christian Nationalism, which reads, The Rise of Right-Wing Wokeism. That is an attention-getter if ever there was one. And I have not read the review yet. It's actually quite long and quite detailed. I did scroll through enough to see, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to block off half an hour to devote to this. But if I'm going to block off half an hour to devote to that, I also want to give you uh, some thoughts on what DeYoung has to say here respond to some of his criticisms, perhaps some of his observations, be persuaded if he's right, if he's got some really good points here to reframe the uh, issue, the debate with regards to so-called Christian nationalism. I'll bring that to you here in the near future, Lord willing. But before I get into all that, I actually want to talk a little bit because I think it would benefit you and I think it would be something you can be encouraged by. I think it's some good news, some happy news, what my family and I sat down and did yesterday after lunch on a Sunday afternoon. Namely, we came home from church, we had our tuna noodle casserole, which we haven't had for quite a while, but man, is it good, and man, did we all miss it. But we had that, and then we cleaned up after lunch, and then the boys had a little bit of math homework to do, They're trying to catch up after some illness uh, over the holidays, both Thanksgiving and Christmas. Oh, also uh, New Year's Eve. Some of our number were sick and ill, not just those days, but those weeks. And so they were working on math, the four older boys, trying to get a little bit of progress made over the weekend. But after all that was done, the four older boys, Lauren and myself, sat down around the dining room table and we pulled out our planners and we went through and filled in anything that we had not written down already for the past week, basically doing a review over anything important that we didn't maybe plan in advance or didn't expect kind of the big thing that happened each day. One big thing that happened each day, and then also we talked through what is coming up this next week. And for one, I was really encouraged because my son Daniel said after we were done, hey, you know what? I actually think the whole planners thing, that's not so bad. That's not so bad. Actually, that was, that was pretty good. I'm looking forward to next week's. And everybody had something to contribute, something to add, something to write down, whether that was for last week or for the week ahead. And even though we were writing in different books because we are individuals, we were all on the same page at the end of our sit down. It took longer than I would like for it to take moving forward, but we'll get better with practice as we establish some rules of decorum and order and how to be efficient and considerate, one of the things that I realized we should probably make a <laughs> standard uh, a habit is when we do sit down to talk through what's coming up this next week or in the coming weeks, we should probably make a note if there's a sidebar conversation one of us needs to have with another one, typically probably you know the boys and either Lauren or myself, but maybe also Lauren and I if there's a sidebar conversation to get into the details and to clear up maybe some questions about, okay, are we ready for that? And do I need to do something or do we have some options that we need to choose from? You know, we should probably table that conversation for the purposes of our going over the planners together and have that be, you know, kind of the call after the big meeting. You know, we'll talk about that after this meeting is something that I hear. And I shared this with our boys and Lauren. We'll talk about that uh, after this meeting. Can I give you a call right after this meeting? That's something I hear at work when you have a big conference call and there's lots of people who don't all necessarily need to be part of that conversation. The two people or three people who do need to be a part of a particular conversation. Well, they'll take that offline so that they're being as efficient with everybody's time as they possibly can. But you know what? If there were no such conversations coming up in the course of a planning session on a Sunday afternoon as a family, if there were no such conversations coming up, it might lead me to wonder whether this is worth our taking some time and sitting down together to do. So I'm glad that there are Questions that came up yesterday as we were talking about what's coming up this next week. I'm glad that those questions were asked, but we might have a little bit of work to do in making that a more efficient process. You know, having rules of order. I've sat on a few governing boards over the years, and one of these days I'll have to get the book on, you know, the rules for how do you conduct a governing board meeting for a church or for a charity or for a 501c3, how do you conduct the business of a meeting in an orderly way? And typically, you know, what I've caught uh, just from experience from other people who are familiar with those rules of order is if there's something that needs to be voted on or approved, one of the number will make a motion to approve or to table or what have you. And then someone will second the motion. And then you'll do the all in favor, say aye, all opposed, say nay, any objections. And that's how you proceed. You don't have everybody talking all at once. And what you don't want is nobody talking because then why would you have a meeting? You know, if nobody is bringing anything to discuss and when they maybe do bring something to discuss, nobody else wants to discuss it, and you, you might as well dissolve your committee, your board, your what have you, because it's, it's either centered on the wrong objective. <laughs> uh, it, you know, this is really not an important thing uh, that we need to have a committee for or a board for. It's either that or you have the wrong people on it. And on the other hand, you know, This is something that actually, I think, pertains to the contests that played out last week in the House of Representatives, United States Congress. If you can't have a debate without a whole lot of upset and name-calling, well, that's not orderly, right? And so, you know, whether you do have some contentious troublemaking people in the assembled body and... They are not a good fit because they don't play well with others, they don't play nice, Uh, or you have uh, a problem culturally where debate is not just unexpected, but it's not tolerated. You know, if that ends up being the case, then what you might need to do is overhaul your deliberative body, your council, your governing board, your what have you. If debate and robust discussion are not going to be allowed in any way, shape, or form, well, then why are you there, right? If you can't have debate and robust discussion because some people just demand that things go their own way or else they're going to hold up everything, uh, you know, it might it might depend on what the issue is. It might depend, you know, more so on, uh, for one, are they right? <laughs> Do they have a point? <laughs> uh, but for two... Do they genuinely believe that this is a critical thing? Like this is it. This gets to the core. If we don't debate this, it gets to the core of why we're even here. And I think you do see that last week with the race for House Speaker, which Kevin McCarthy over the weekend ended up winning. Uh, he didn't necessarily win over every Republican who was a part of the House Freedom caucus, as they call themselves. He did not necessarily win them over, but six, I believe it was, of that number which had said they would not vote for Kevin McCarthy held to their word and voted present. They didn't vote for him, they voted present. And they didn't have the votes to select a different speaker. So I suppose that was as good as it was going to get for them. Uh, But then again, in centuries past, we've had, In some cases, I think in the record case, three months before the House Speaker was selected, they went into the triple digits, actually, not just double digits, triple digits with number of votes taken because a consensus could not be reached. But it's curious. In listening to McCarthy's speech right before he took the oath and officially became the Speaker of the House for the 118th Congress. In his speech, he alludes to Abraham Lincoln and a certain clock that everyone in the House chamber should go and see and study at least once and meditate on and think about carefully because that clock was there when Abraham Lincoln was president. And it is the clock which was ticking when he presided over, that's why we call them the president, he presided over the first American Civil War. And I know I talk with some and they're very troubled. It's funny how I, I, I don't find a lot of people who are in between comfortably. They are either all in on downplaying where we're at right now and saying, no, 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 there won't be another Civil War. That's just ridiculous. That's unreasonable. That'll never happen. They're either there where they downplay, it, minimize, marginalize anybody who is concerned or <laughs> uh, as bad or worse, they are hyperbolic about how bad things are. Not only is a conflict brewing civil war 2.0, but that will be the end of America. We will not come out of it. And both alike are very troubling, but Put aside both, the overly fatalistic, it's all over, it's all over, it's just a matter of time now, people who I think are despairing, and I do not believe that that is the correct view. It ain't over till it's over. It ain't over till the fat lady sings. If you're correct, well, then we will all weep together in the ashes. But the folks who are downplaying everything, I want to address the elephant in the room, no pun intended, because Kevin McCarthy talking about civil war, bringing it up, is he's not the only one. In fact, increasingly, increasingly, the murmurings and the rumblings of the wise with regards to the state of politics in this country seem like a man who suddenly becomes very, very nauseous. It's not that he has thrown up. It's not that he has vomited, but he feels it coming. He's not going to be able to keep the food down. He's got a bug or something. He he knows that he's off. He knows that his equilibrium is not what it ought to be. The room spins a little. His stomach churns. He gets that weird, tingly feeling in his throat and neck, that cramping feeling in his stomach. I hear that in Kevin McCarthy's speech. And I know that he is trying to put on a friendly face and that he is wanting to tamp down such concerns, but so also is the man who knows that he's about to throw up. He tries to tell himself that, no, no, I can, mm, I can keep it down at least until I have a chance to lie down or find a restroom or a bowl or a trash can or something, step outside Get away from the folks who are around me right now. I don't want to embarrass myself, he thinks. And so he tries to put on a pleasant face, but you know. You can see when he starts to turn pale and looks uneasy on his feet and holds himself very gingerly and excuses himself abruptly and seems not to hear what you're saying, which has nothing to do with him trying to focus everything on keeping whatever it is that's in his stomach in his stomach. You know, so also that man tries to put on a friendly face. And I think in the case of Kevin McCarthy, he is alluding to the possibility, the distinct possibility. You know, what's curious is that right before Kevin McCarthy stepped up to the podium to give his speech, Hakeem Jeffries, who by unanimous vote again and again, round after round, was the Democrats pick was introducing Kevin McCarthy. And before Hakeem Jeffries introduced Kevin McCarthy, the Democrats in Congress were chanting USA, USA, USA. And I don't quite know what the story is there, but they were chanting in unison. And I didn't see the Republicans chanting in unison. And I think that that is politics right now. The Democrats are the prostitute who wants half of a dead baby rather than the other woman get the whole baby. Whoever's baby it really should be. The woman who says, fine, fine by me to Solomon when he calls for a sword and for the baby to be cut in two, that woman is not the mother. She can't be the mother. There won't be a baby for her to be a mother of if she's the mother. And so it's macabre. It's ghoulish given the circumstances of recent years that the Democrats would chant USA, 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 and vote unanimously round after round for Hakeem Jeffries, and that the Republicans would be the ones being accused of causing a lot of trouble. The Republicans are all the trouble in the country, supposedly. That's the claim. But don't you believe it? It's just like somebody going to church. Somebody can go to church, and they can be uh, an awful person unkind, selfish, brutish, a hypocrite, play-acting. And what would be exceedingly unwise would be to say that the existence of such people in a church means that Christ is not risen or that our faith in him is in vain. That would be exceedingly foolish. Even when Christians are our most faithful, best, brightest, most cheerful, selfless, still, even there we are not the object of faith so also i think with regards to republicans you have some who seem who seem to have it all together and whether they do or whether that is the fox guarding the henhouse maybe only the lord knows for absolute sure in most if not all cases and i mean this for the establishment types and i mean this for the holdouts for the opposition voices, for the individuals and groups like the House Freedom Caucus and its members, they're easy to pick on. And sometimes I think that our leading voices in this country are so focused on believing their own propaganda about the opposition voices that they don't have time or attention for much else. And this is part of the dysfunction that leads to civil wars, that the animus towards one another grows so fierce, so hot, so intractable, that nothing can be accomplished until that is put to rest or sated. Nothing else matters. And so at a certain point, both sides throw down. One or the other will throw the first punch. The other... (laughs) may have provoked it, both alike were willing, and now everybody's in it for however long it takes to sate that contempt and that hatred and that animus towards one another, that malice towards one another. It's already a travesty that the attitudes are such as they are. As a church, Summit View Community Church in Greeley Evans, Colorado. That's where we are members and where we attend. When we're not sick, speaking of sick people, we know something about sick people (laughs) and nausea. We're all too familiar this past year. Our pastors and other honorable men who are asked from time to time to fill the pulpit have been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount in the gospel according to Matthew. And when we come to Jesus saying, You have heard that it was said, thou shalt not murder. You scale that up and you can make some worthwhile observations about where our country is at and should. You can say, oh, it's fine, right? It's fine. We don't have a hot civil war right now. And you're wrong. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that you're wrong. You're missing the key ingredient to murder, which is hate. And the hate is here. And the hate is real. And the hate is all-inclusive and comprehensive. And that hate is, in God's eyes, as bad as if we were already murdering one another. And people throughout history, every time there is a civil war in a country, not just ours, but in any country, and every country has them, it's like an illness And both sides think the other side is the foreign contaminant that needs to be expelled from the body. But in every country, at a certain point, the hatred is so fierce, intractable, long-lasting, enduring, comprehensive, pervasive, that at a certain point, they realize that that hatred continuing on indefinitely might be worse than a civil war. In the short term, relatively speaking, that hatred is corrosive, acidic, but that hatred is already here. And that's why the murmurings of the wise, where political commentary is concerned, the murmurings of the wise increasingly talk about a civil war. That's why Kevin McCarthy's smiling face, friendly face made references to Abraham Lincoln. In reading Mark Noel's book, The Civil War is a Theological Crisis, I was struck by two things, particularly. One, that there was so much self-awareness for decades leading up to the American Civil War, where the theological debate about the issue of slavery in a broad, general sense had the pastors who were abolitionists. The theologians who were abolitionists, the lay people who were abolitionists, quoting scripture. Also, those who were pro-slavery, pastors, theologians, lay people, quoting scripture, debating back and forth, heatedly, increasingly heatedly, and always reliably questioning the salvation of the other. And this is where, in our day, it takes many forms. It takes many various expressions. On the progressive side, you have those saying, if you are not for open borders and the welfare state and transing the kids and gay marriage and abortion, you're not even a Christian. You're a Nazi. You're a white supremacist. You're an oppressor. You're not even a Christian. You don't even know Jesus. Jesus said, love your neighbor. And All too often, and I say this as a conservative who strives to maintain an independent mind, an independent voice, because I distrust all 'all (laughs) y'all to some degree or another. And in fact, as a matter of fact, I distrust myself as well. Any good conservative worth their salt distrusts themselves and everyone else to some extent. You must, or at best, what Reagan said, trust, but verify, which is a a way of redefining trust. That is not the way we mean trust. I'm afraid that's the way we should think of trust. If we are informed in our view of human nature by God's word, let God be true. And every man, a liar, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked doesn't mean that you're always lying, but it means that you always might be lying to yourself and therefore telling untruths to others. You might be. And so you've got to double check. You've got to verify. And when you realize that that's true of you, that's the case with yourself. How can you then say that it's not true of other people, particularly when you see for your own eyes, (laughs) you, you see them sometimes lying to themselves and telling others what they believe to be the truth, but it's not. And other times, knowing better, intentionally misleading those around them, to use them, to defraud them, to cheat them. But on the right, all too often, among conservatives, whether we're talking theological conservatives in the church, whether we're talking social conservatives in broader society, whether we're talking political conservatives, all too often, when there is a debate, a debate is not allowed. As in, if you read the comment section, anytime a supposed conservative comes to a different conclusion than you do, and you're supposedly a conservative, well, they're not really a conservative. That's a dangerous way to reason and lazy. Take care what you are conserving. I see this in the church, and I see this in Congress. I think this is the soul of our people right now and the rule rather than the exception and the people that we think are extraordinary are the exceptions. And we think they're extraordinary for being even handed because they don't do what the majority of us are doing on a regular basis on issue after issue. How can you have a deliberative body when anytime there is a substantive difference of opinion or conclusion, The dueling pistols come out. And I was glad with regards to the esteemed congressman from Texas or one of them, the gentleman who lost an eye serving in the military for the United States of America, who also called the House Freedom Caucus members who were refusing to vote for Kevin McCarthy, enemies, terrorists, narcissists. He walked that back. Dan Crenshaw walked that back. I was glad to see that. But the problem is our hearts. We hate each other over the most trivial of disagreements. And even on substantive disagreements, it is impossible to have substantive debate when we hate each other, period. Insults and barbs are traded and then responded to and escalation occurs. And the harsh tones are selfish and foolish, and at some point will, if not moderated, if not curbed, lead to a second civil war. And maybe that's just not avoidable. Maybe that's what we want. Maybe that's what we must have before we will moderate ourselves. We must see the total devastation of one another, the total ruination of ourselves before we will love One another, as God in Christ Jesus first loved us. It's not sustainable. And that's true in many of the particulars. The welfare state is not sustainable. This promotion of sexual immorality in our schools and in culture in the public square is not sustainable. It cannot be. It is self destructive. It is suicidal. Open borders are not sustainable. Sending money to other countries and thereby devaluing our currency here, is not sustainable. Also, not being able to have substantive debate. That too. And actually, more especially, that cannot be borne. No people can endure who say they love liberty, but hate their brothers, hate their own country, hate having to be persuasive, hate being persuaded. But that is where we find ourselves, ladies and gentlemen. We find ourselves on the precipice materially, but not spiritually. We find ourselves already at the bottom of the gorge spiritually. So I look at Kevin McCarthy winning, and I think, yes, we'll see. The old joke, how can you tell if a politician is lying to you? His lips are moving. It's a grim kind of dark humor we'll see. Don't tell me, show me. A curious thing with regards to open borders. Since I said we would talk about open borders, we will talk about open borders. Greg Abbott, Republican governor of Texas, hand-delivered a letter to President Joe Biden during Biden's visit to the United States border with Mexico. Some of the quotes highlighted in reporting over at the Daily Wire, Quote, number one, your visit to our southern border with Mexico today is $20 billion too little and two years too late. Moreover, your visit avoids the sites where mass illegal immigration occurs and sidesteps the thousands of angry Texas property owners whose lives have been destroyed by your border policies. Continuing on, quote, even the city you visit has been sanitized of the migrant camps which had overrun downtown El Paso because your administration wants to shield you from the chaos the Texans experience on a daily basis. The chaos is the direct result of your failure to enforce the immigration laws that Congress enacted. A little further, quote, Your open border policies have emboldened the cartels who grow wealthy by trafficking deadly fentanyl and even human beings. Texans are paying an especially high price for your failure Sometimes with their very lives as local leaders from your own party will tell you if given the chance. And that's a strong conclusion. I actually don't know if that's the very conclusion of the letter, but that is persuasive. Go ask members of your own party here. Ask them. They'll tell you. This is unacceptable. Meanwhile, Ryan Sevedra over at the Daily Wire Published a piece two days ago titled, Mexico's Leftist President Abandons Hugs Not Bullets Approach to Crime. Didn't work and is not viable. AMLO, as he's known, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, came into office promising, pledging that they were going to love the drug cartels in Mexico into repentance. And it didn't work. Period. Period. And the reason that that doesn't work is because it assumes man is inherently good. Man is not inherently good. Not since the fall. Only by God's grace are we capable of doing good from good motives to a good end. God works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. To where even when we clumsily fuddle around in trying to obey, wanting to obey, also not wanting to obey at the same time, all rolled into one wretched man that I am. God still works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But what about for those who don't love God, who love pleasure, who love their stomachs? They love to please themselves. They love themselves rather than loving what is good. What about those people? Do all things work to the good for them? No, indeed. And so it's curious that Mexico tried and failed to make the loving your neighbor as you love yourself the way that the government deals with crime, violent crime, on a scale and at a magnitude that we here in America very often can't even imagine but increasingly can because of open border policies. From the Democrats, from the Biden administration. We increasingly can imagine because it's coming across the border to raid and to plunder us. The government's job is not not to go and hug a criminal, hug a thug in hopes that his inherent goodness will shine through now. He'll leave behind that life of crime. No, that's not the government's job. That's not what Romans 13 says. It says, he does not bear the sword for nothing. And how absurd would it be if it said, he does not give free hugs for nothing. That's insane. That is literally becoming futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts being darkened, that that would be our approach to violent crime, domestic terrorism. For all the hyperbole and propaganda against conservatives here in the United States that we are All potential domestic terrorists, if we show up to a school board meeting and object to kids being shown graphic pictures of sex acts required to memorize and recite graphic dialogue describing sexual immorality. You know, a close-by country that has a real problem with domestic terrorism? Mexico and the drug cartels. Now, I, for one, personally... Use the term terrorist because we're familiar with it. I don't like the term terrorist. Actually, if you want to be precise, not to quibble about the definitions of words, but if you want to be precise in your language, and we Americans really could stand to be more precise in our language, it's always been the case. The government is supposed to terrorize those who do evil. As in the governing authority who bears the sword for something does hold terror for the worker of lawlessness, the evildoer, and should. That's his job, actually, to strike terror into the hearts of our enemies. Now, if you have a lawless person who is trying to strike terror into the hearts of innocent people who are doing what is good, they need to be put down. This idea of social justice, which I was just answering a question from one of my sons last night concerning, dad, what is woke? What does that mean? And I said, in a nutshell, it is the idea that those who are poor and have not are the oppressed and those who are rich and who have wealth means power, authority, social standing, they are the oppressors. And the rich have because they stole from the poor. And the poor are criminals, even when they're criminals, because they're oppressed. And if we just redistribute all of the wealth, then we will have social justice. And if you're woke, well, then what you're saying is you have woke up to the fact. You are awake. You have awakened. Not to be confused with the first and second great awakening, as they were called, some people say not so great awakening, okay awakening. <laughs> the second <clears throat> great awakening was maybe the okayest awakening, if you ask certain theological professors, church historians. This is the really not so great awakening, and it is a bastardization of the gospel when it gets mixed in with Christian faith because it is antithetical verse after verse after verse that define what God's justice is and what he expects and requires with regards to justice. It doesn't work. And actually, speaking of believing that people are inherently good, what happened with the rich? Like, Where did they go off? And why don't you think that the folks who are selling you a bill of goods right now are any better than the rich people who are supposedly oppressing you now because they have something you don't. You know what's oppressing you is your covetous heart, actually. Coveting is so wicked, it makes the top ten. When God gives his law to the people of Israel on tablets of stone, written in his own finger, coveting makes the list. It's very curious. All of the Ten Commandments have to do with property rights, if you think about it, what belongs to God? Remember that God owns your worship. Your worship belongs to him. Don't worship any other God. You owe worship to God, Yahweh God, Lord of heaven and earth. The holiness of his name belongs to him. Don't use it in vain. Don't use it in a cheap mercenary utilitarian way. The Sabbath belongs to him, which we don't keep. We ought to. God forgive us. But we don't keep it. But then the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We should take better care how we define what is or is not an ox having fallen in the well. We should meditate on what it would mean to keep the Sabbath holy, set apart. But it does come down to property rights. You belong to God. Everything that you are working on and with belongs to God, The Sabbath belongs to God. Then you get into stealing. Thou shalt not steal anything that belongs to your neighbor. Property rights. Thou shalt not commit adultery. What is adultery? Taking your neighbor's wife. That woman belongs to your neighbor, not to you. Property rights. In a sense. Or if you prefer ownership. Or if you prefer entitlement. Because entitlement is not always a bad thing. If we think entitlement is always this pampered, spoiled brat problem, just because it often is in our day, divorced from God's economy, what do you call it when you buy a car and you get the little piece of paper that says, this car belongs to you? This is your car. What do you get when you buy a house and you get the piece of paper that says, this house belongs to you? This is your house, your home. For you to do with it what you will. Fix it up. Maintain it. Expand it. Knock it down. Build a different house. Your house. What you get is a title. That title conveys authority, claim, ownership. Thou shalt not murder. What is murder? It is not just killing. Murder is the unjust taking of someone else's life. In other words that's not your life. Their life does not belong to you. You stole. That's property rights. You've taken something that someone else belonged to God with, in a certain sense. Their life belongs to God. Your life belongs to God. But you're also set, you're also taking something that belongs to that other person, namely their life belongs to them and to God. If it belongs to any human being, it belongs to they themselves. But more properly, it belongs to God. Property rights. And you know what? Not everyone is given an equal number of talents. In the parable of the talents, one servant is given a certain amount. The other servant is given a different amount. The third servant is given still a lesser amount. And the one with the least buries it in a field. He does not invest it. He does not make a profit with the money that his master entrusted to him. When his master returns, he takes what was buried in a field and he gives it to one of the other two servants and calls that third servant who buried the talents in a field wicked And that is a picture of what the social justice crowd will say is the real reason, but in reverse. Because the wicked servant says, I knew that you were a hard man. Reaping where you do not sow, sowing where you do not reap. In other words, he is maligning the character of the master. The fairness, the decency, the justice. There's some combination of spite and contempt and egotism to his burying those talents in a field if he knew that he was supposed to go and invest them. It was pride, not just laziness, and not just fear, pride, self-absorption. And so the right way to look at that parable cannot square with social justice and critical theory and wokeism because the master takes The master being God here takes from the servant who buried the talents in the field and gives to one of the servants who had invested and turned the most profit, who had invested most wisely. And in the case of Mexico and in the case of the U.S., our governments think hug a thug is the answer. The problem here is that the servant who buried his talent in the field, you know, he didn't get a good education. He doesn't understand how to invest. It's not easy enough. We have to make it easier. And he just wasn't loved well enough by his father and his mother growing up. He lived on the wrong side of town. He didn't have all the advantages that this other kid did. Clearly, we, if we're social justice activists, if we want social justice, should take from the two who invested and turned a profit and redistribute to the wicked servant so that it can look like he also made a prophet so that next time, next time, he'll know how that feels and how good that feels. And No, that's not what God did. That's not what Jesus is teaching. That's not the lesson of the parable of the talents. Hmm. Curious. Very curious. See, and that's not mercy either. We need to understand that mercy is a statement that you have done wrong. The unmerciful thing is not to tell somebody, you have wronged me, you have sinned against me, but neither is it mercy to say, we're just not going to talk about that. I'm just going to reward you and claim that what you did was every bit as legitimate as if you had done the honorable, obedient, wise thing. Romans 13 does not say the governing authority is a minister of God to reward everybody. How odd would that be to read the passage that way? The governing authority does not bear the sword for nothing. Obviously, he bears it to slice open watermelons so that everybody can have watermelon, regardless whether they have been wicked or righteous, wise or foolish. Uh Uh-uh. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Moving on. I'm going to play a little bit of audio here from the governor of Texas. You can take a listen. This is him. Speaking on President Biden's border visit yesterday, and I quote to a sanitized version of El Paso, he says he has no plans to enforce federal immigration laws. Biden's plan will only entice more illegal crossings. Texas will continue our historic border mission to protect our state. Here's Greg Abbott, governor of Texas. Take a listen. We have very simple solutions the Biden administration could apply to do something about this if they wanted to, uh, but they really don't care about stopping illegal immigration. Biden is there today to look at a sanitized El Paso uh, so that he can do all he can to help and aid the illegal immigrants as opposed to stopping them from coming into our country. And there you go. This is not to say, this is not to say that I don't think we should have immigrants invited in, welcomed in, treated hospitably. My ancestors immigrated here, all of them that I have found so far, with a few exceptions on the Blaylock side, my mother's father's mother's side of the family. There are some Native Americans back in the 17th century and the 18th century, but my ancestors immigrated here. Your ancestors probably immigrated here. Republicans, conservatives, independents, Democrats, all of the above should be able to agree that if the front door of your house is unlocked and there are dangerous people in your neighborhood, it's just a matter of time before somebody's going to break in, but they don't even have to break in if the door is just unlocked. They're just going to come right in and... They're going to do what they want with your stuff, with you, with your loved ones, with your home. I have locks on my doors. I don't know about you. Not because I am an inhospitable person, not because I don't love people outside of my home, not because I'm selfish, but because I take seriously my responsibility to protect my family, to be a good steward of my wife, my children, my home, my property, all of the above ultimately belonging, as I do, to God, knowing that there are depraved people, there are wicked people, there are evildoers, there are lawless men, who if they thought this was a ripe target, a vulnerable, soft target, would hurt all of the above, steal, rape, pillage, all of the above. Therefore, I reason, a country is little to no different. If you have dangerous people in your neighborhood, like let's say, for instance, drug cartels, human traffickers, terrorists, lawless men, you control access and you don't let them in. If they try to get in, you stop them. If they refuse to be stopped or deterred, you shoot them. Period. I don't know who you are, but I know this is not your house. And I know I didn't invite you in. And if you broke in, particularly under cover of night, My Bible, God's word, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable, says that you have forfeited your life. I'm not stealing your life. I'm not breaking one of the Ten Commandments if I shoot you. So also, if I said, oh, well, I'm a Christian and I have to turn the other cheek. And now that means that I'm going to do nothing. I won't even call the police. I'm just going to let you do whatever you will do. I think that that is not wise, and I think that that is not what God requires of us. And furthermore, if you scale up that kind of a mindset to a national level, what you will get is wicked men, lawless men, terrorizing the public. Not just you, also your neighbor. Do you love your neighbor? Well, then it would seem to me you have a responsibility to concern yourself with your neighbor's well-being. Proverbs, with all of its talk of wisdom and folly, intersperses quite a lot about righteousness and wickedness as well. And the two are distinct. Not everything that is wise is synonymous with righteousness per se. Now, godly wisdom is inseparable from righteousness, but wisdom in a general sense is distinct from righteousness. Something can be unwise and you not necessarily be guilty of committing a, moral, a a mortal sin, it could be unwise, it could be foolish. Hey, that was a bad choice. That was a mistake. It doesn't mean you're going to hell. It doesn't mean that you don't love God or know God. It means that you are a finite creature who works off of incomplete information and sometimes makes mistakes, and you should learn from them. And if you don't learn from them, well, then you're a fool. To make a mistake is not necessarily in and of itself the same thing as you being an idiot or dumb or a fool or what have you. If you continue on making the same mistake and refusing to correct, even when you are instructed and advised on how to correct the mistake, that that is what would make you a fool. And if you are intentionally making the mistake that harms other people, then shrugging and saying, oh, it was just a mistake. Because you derive a benefit from that, well, that's wicked. That's corrupt. Then the Venn diagram finds you in the middle where the two circles of wickedness and folly overlap with regards to our southern border i can empathize with people who don't have a good situation in the countries that they currently live in also for all the same reasons that i wouldn't move my family to those countries and have to deal with crime human trafficking drugs cartels i also must insist that the people that the men, women, and children are trying to get away from cannot come into this country and do the same things here that they do down there, but we're a fatter target, a softer target. I must insist. And that is not unloving. In fact, that is the most loving thing I can say because we do no good to anyone who would seek asylum here if we also let in the perpetrators of horrendous crimes from all the places that folks seeking asylum here are coming from. It's very, very important that we think rightly about this. I can empathize with a man from Mexico or Colombia or Venezuela or Bolivia who would want to come to America so that he can protect his family more effectively provide for his family more fully, not have to work so hard, but also give them a better life. I can applaud that man. I can say, God bless you, sir. And that's right. And that's honorable. And I commend you for it. I can also say the folks who have made a ruin of your country and made it a lawless, corrupt place, if they come here, well, then they're just going to do the same thing to this country that they did to the country you fled. And they are. And it needs to stop because we live here. I can commend you. If you can't appreciate why I would need to protect and provide for my family, well then, we have a problem. And that's not honorable because this is our country. And to that, the woke would say, ah, yes, but we stole it. right? It's on stolen land. Read a book, please. Check out 1491, for starters, about European, African, Middle Eastern, Asian diseases, old world diseases, not just European, but old world diseases coming to the new world, not intentionally. The Spaniards who came here first, they didn't want to bring those diseases with them. They didn't want those diseases, but the diseases came with them. And there was no immunity among the indigenous Americans. And in short order, within decades, old world diseases that new world people didn't have immunity for wiped out potentially 80, 85, 90, 95% of the population of North, Central, and South America. There were extensive trading networks, there was extensive civilization that had been built up. It collapsed. You can call that an act of God (laughs) that the people at the time did the indigenous Americans did the Europeans who came here, did you can call that an act of God. It wasn't genocide. There was war part of the reason for the conflicts, lots of conflicts between Europeans and indigenous Americans of various tribes had to do with disagreement over property rights Here we've got God's word from the old world telling us thou shalt thou shalt not with regards to property rights. Indigenous Americans didn't have the same view of property rights that Europeans did. And so they would make a deal and the Europeans move in expecting that this deal is good. And then comes a conflict because, well, these guys over here who also lay claim didn't agree to this well, wait a second. Well, these guys did. Who's in charge here? Can I speak to your manager? It's complicated. A porous Southern border with Mexico for the United States is not that complicated. Actually, it's really not. Not if you have a biblical understanding of your priorities and what they should be. And any other country that wants to decry our having those priorities, either is being disingenuous and you can tell, looking at how they relate to those priorities internally, they're either being disingenuous and pretending to try and get something from us, which is wicked of them, or they don't have the right priorities either. And we don't need to be taking cues from them if their country's a mess. I'm sorry. Come back and lecture us when you've got your house in order. Please and thank you very much. We need to get ours in order. Butt out. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I really got to run. Much more could be said. I would love to say more in future on the whole question of illegal immigration. For now, I will leave you with this very, very simple idea that it is exceedingly loving for a husband and father as head of his home to have doors that lock to keep lawless men out and to protect his family. That's exceedingly loving. You scale that up. And you have all that you need to know to support border security with a country. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.